Today on the Bill Kelly Podcast, a look at Canada's coming military space division with defense reporter for the Ottawa Citizen, David Puglisi. We go in-depth about the ripple effects of the Rogers outage ahead of a report due to the CRTC this week with DeGroote School of Business professor Marvin Ryder and an investigative piece on a multi-year fraud that funneled more than a million dollars out of a retirement home and the fallout from that with reporter Grant LaFleche. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts right now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It's expected that in the next couple of weeks, the Canadian military will officially announce a space division. It's an idea that's been kicked around for a few years now, but word is it's going to happen perhaps by late summer, maybe early fall. David Puglisi is a defense reporter with the Ottawa Citizen, and he's joining us now. Good morning. Good morning. Um, You know, I'm just dying to call this Space Force Canada. (laughs) I know, there's been a lot of, uh, well, when uh, Donald Trump created uh, the U.S. Space Division, there is, well, it spinned off to a Netflix show, so. (laughs) I was going to say, when he created it, it was sort of mocked for a number of different reasons, even though it's got, what, 8,000 personnel? Yeah, the U.S. Um, uh, Space Command has around 8,000. Um, uh, the United Kingdom created theirs uh, last year. They've got about 400. Australia is creating its um, Space Force. So they haven't come up with a specific name yet. Um, and they haven't got the numbers, um, uh, you know, for how many people are going to be in that one. Well, while it's not been officially announced, it's one of those really poorly kept secrets that everybody's been talking about, Right. Um, especially since you've reported on it in the Ottawa Citizen now. What is this space division going to look like? Do we have any indications? Well, the Canadian Forces uh, and and National Defense uh, already have people working on space, uh, space operations, that type of thing. So this is going to bring... Uh, those people under under one command, and so they're looking at you know they have probably around 180 people doing the job now. They're going to expand that in the coming years, um, you know, to uh, uh, more than 200, uh, 245, I think was uh, was the number being kicked around. So it's more of a, a kind of a coordinating command um, uh, to uh, you know for people involved in space operations. Well, if we've already sort of had this kind of thing under the umbrella of the Canadian Air Force, why are they creating a defined division? Well, this is going to be um, um, a division uh, in the Canadian Air Force. So the Canadian Air Force is responsible for uh, space operations and space-related issues uh, in the military. Um, It's just more of uh, a way to uh, better coordinate uh, how the military um, operates uh, for space it gives them some input um, in uh, what they purchase in the future because um, the military has um, several billion dollars worth of um, uh, spacecraft it wants to uh, it wants to develop over you know over the next decade and uh, put into orbit. I'm speaking with Ottawa citizen defense reporter David Puglisi about the creation of the Canadian Space Division within our own military. Is it going to have a specific name? Is it part of the, is it going to still be under the Air Force? Is it going to be a separate division entirely? Yeah, it's uh, it's under the Air Force and uh, the name isn't, uh, isn't that sexy. It's three Canadian space divisions. So it's, uh, you know, uh, it's not like uh, Space Force or United Starfleet Command or anything <laughs> like that. So it's pretty, pretty mundane. Okay. How much is this going to cost us? 
Well, it's uh, they haven't uh, given the dollar figures out, but uh, since the people are already already in existence, um, I'd imagine that the you know the uh, price tag is is um, not going to be too high. But I guess it's also one of those things because you know the U.S. has it, Britain, Australia. It's one of those things we really can't not do it. Yeah, so what that's a that's a good point. I mean, there's um one of the roles of the space command or space division is your you know, you've got a recognized organization that uh, is able to talk to uh your allied uh, space commands or space divisions. Now, space-based defense is important for the average Canadian. I was thinking about communications and by extension banking. We've already dealt with you know, the Rogers situation. We'll be speaking about that a little later on this morning um, uh, with Marvin Ryder. But um, it is it is important for the average Canadian. Yeah, I, almost everything we do is has some kind of space component. I mean, in our commerce, in our day-to-day lives, you know, the GPS in your car, uh, you and I talking, um, uh, you know, our, all our communications or most of our communications uh, for the military, it's going. It's equally important, obviously, because uh, uh, you know a lot of their weapons rely on GPS, or and, and there's a lot of communication between military units. They want to uh, develop um, a new satellite, so communications will improve uh, in our Arctic. So there's, uh, it's it's part of our everyday life. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the Arctic because that's one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about. I mean, we've had Russia testing Canadian sovereignty in the Arctic in other ways. I'm, I'm thinking mostly through the Navy and um, uh, sort of elbowing in, if you will. How would this be part of that defense? Well, this, uh, well, what is developed by the Canadian forces, a spacecraft in the future, whether it's, uh, you know, they've got ideas for a new satellite, for instance. So that will allow uh, easier communications in the Arctic. Uh, communications in the Arctic is problematic at, at this point. Um, so if they've got uh, new satellites, which they plan, which are going to cost a lot of money, um, it will improve the way communities up in the Arctic, um, you know, communicate with each other as well as military units. What are critics saying about this? Uh, there hasn't been a lot of pushback um, on this. I think it's uh, it's um, recognized as space is an important factor for the country's security as well as our uh, our day to day lives. So uh, there hasn't been uh, anything that I've seen actually. Well, that's kind of interesting because usually any move you make, there's going to be some pushback somewhere. Yeah, it's uh, the space projects seem to uh, seem to uh, be able to move forward in the sense that they provide us something we can actually use. Um, it's, it's quite different when you know you spend a billion dollars on tanks, for instance. That um, the the average you know member of the public is is kind of questioning why that that's done. So, but space is a different uh, beast. Well, that's interesting because I was thinking that uh, some of the pushback would be, you know, there are branches of the services we already have that uh, are are clamoring for upgrades. You know, I'm thinking about the helicopters and and um, some of the jets in our Canadian Air Force. Um, that have long since uh, needed an upgrade, um, and and here we are creating another division. I was expecting some pushback there. 
Yeah, no, the, I mean, the actual creation of the division is, is not going to cost a lot of money. What's going to cost uh, a lot of money are the uh, spacecraft that the Canadian military wants to put up into, in the future. So, for instance, uh, the Arctic Communications Satellite, they're, they're talking, uh, you know, at least five to five, six, seven billion dollars. Um, but again, it, you don't see a lot of pushback on these on these systems in the sense that it just seems to be um, more of a contribution to the to the country's security uh, that people can understand rather than uh, you know the um, the new ships that they're building um, that's gone from 25 billion to 100 billion dollars so people start questioning uh, that type of thing and and, and those excessive jumps in uh, in cost what is Canada's reputation as far as um, uh, our involvement in space ventures is concerned? Well, we've got a, a good, our, our uh, technology companies have a good reputation. We're seen as uh, small in, in that uh, realm. I'm always surprised that the, the government doesn't push forward in that in the sense of, you know, the jobs it creates um, and, and the systems that, that are built are, are more benign um, you know, from a public point of view, but uh, but uh, Canada's got a, a good reputation in in space. And again, this is one of those things. If if our key allies, you know, the U.S. notwithstanding, I mean, we're in the Commonwealth with Britain and Australia. If they're doing it, we kind of have to make sure that we're a presence there too. Yes, that's the argument for sure. Yeah. Um, and it, it, what is this, it, like, you know, you said it's a, a limited number of people to begin with, something like 180, I think you said? That's right, yes. Okay. How does somebody get to be in that division? Well, these people are already in in trades, uh, as they're called, that are related to space. So whether you're uh, communications or whether you're, um, for instance, the military has uh, a spacecraft uh, called uh, Polar Epsilon, and that um, uh, there's a number of spacecraft. And for instance, they're watching uh, space junk, um, and some people are assigned to NORAD to do that. So it's it's different trades in in the Air Force. You're watching space junk. Yeah. So you don't want uh, you know there's all there's thousands, millions of pieces of metal from from former spacecraft. There's meteors, there's uh, space dust, <laughs> there's rocks, there's everything flying around. And what you don't want is uh, is some of that junk to uh, hit one of your uh, communication satellites, for instance, which would then knock out your uh, MasterCard and your, your Visa and, and that type of commerce. Yeah, we were close enough to that like a week and a half ago. Right. <laughs> so you saw how that happened. Can you imagine, you know, if a major satellite was was taken out by a, a piece of uh, metal that uh, was still up there from, you know, one of the shuttle flights. That sounds like one of those jobs, though, that we've seen, I don't know, in countless movies where it's like boring, boring, boring. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, I think you're thinking maybe of gravity or, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. So when do we expect that this is actually going to be formalized? So they're talking about they'll have it in, in place um, they're roughly September, in the fall. Okay, so are we expecting a, a big news conference like Donald Trump's Space Force one? I don't think so. They'll put a, they'll probably put out a press release. They may even come up with a new uh, with a new 
patch or badge or whatever for for these individuals to put on their uniforms so it all depends on how uh how much they want to hype it but uh you know the pushback for trump's space force uh might uh kind of dampen some of that pr well okay part of that was not just the name it's because he ripped off the star trek logo well exactly you know so <laughs> So we're going to do a little bit better than that, I hope. I, I would hope so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's the name of it again? It's uh, th- Three Space Division. So it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. Okay. Or and Three Canadian Space Division. I have to say, if it's Three Space Division, where are one and two? Oh, so those are Air Force uh, Air Force divisions, uh, other other organizations within the Air Force. Okay, I had to ask. It's just, it's just one of those things. Know, we're starting with number three. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful, David. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I really appreciate it. Great, thank you. Okay, we've been talking about uh, the Canadian military. It's about to officially announce a space division. David Puglesi is a defense reporter with the Ottawa Citizen. We thank him for his time. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are just a few days away from a report to due to the CRTC, that's the Canadian Radio, Television and Telecommunications Commission, about the recent and huge Rogers outage. It's given Rogers till Friday of this week to answer a list of questions about that outage, like what caused it. Rogers has said it was a maintenance update that was caused that caused a network failure. Rather, uh, there was also a recent meeting with Federal Innovation, Science and Industry Minister. Francois-Philippe Champagne. I wanted to make sure that in no uncertain terms they understand how Canadians felt the situation to be unacceptable and that they need to take immediate uh, initial steps to improve the resiliency of our network in Canada. Here to offer some of his insight about this is Marvin Ryder, professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Always a pleasure, Marvin. Good morning, Shauna. Yeah, glad to be with you. Um, I guess one of the first questions is, is Rogers going to make that deadline for this report? I think so. Uh, uh, what, this is really what I'd call an unforced error or, or an unintended consequence. Uh, you and I don't know this, but all the time in these high technology things, you've got to upgrade the software, you've got to upgrade the hardware. And of course, you do it it's sort of in the middle of the night, maybe at two in the morning, three in the morning, when the number of users are low to make it all happen. And these things normally happen and you and I don't even know that they've happened. They go without uh, any impact. But if something goes wrong, boy, does it spin out of control. This is what happened in April of 2021 with Rogers. And then it happened again here a few weeks ago. And this is what they're going to say that either they installed a piece of hardware or a piece of software and it didn't go the way it was supposed to. And then you got this cascade failure of the network across the place. Uh, I understand a lot of people say, well, this this shouldn't happen. And you're absolutely right. It shouldn't happen. Shoni, you don't know this, but for five years, I was the chief information officer at McMaster. And while I was the big boss, we had to roll things out. And I can tell you, any day we had to roll out an upgrade, I kind of held my breath, (laughs) hoping that everything was going to be okay. And for the most part, it was. But again, every now and again, you would roll out something and users, once they got their hands on it, started using it in a way you had never imagined. And you had to scramble on the fly to make things work. And that is what happens in this technology area. 
I'm kind of giggling because I think, uh, you know, aside from this being such a a massive situation that affected millions of people across the country, uh, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of businesses across the country as well. I'm giggling because I think anybody in a business has had that, oh, great, they're doing updates. Yeah, situation. It it may have happened to your own computer or your own cell phone, and it seems quite innocuous, just press this and get the latest version, but then suddenly all these other things go wrong. So, uh, Shona, what I'm going to say to you is, and this this is going to sound terrible, but uh, the people I blame are actually those people who assumed that their network might never go down. Take an example. We don't assume that electricity won't operate. We all experience blackouts. And suppose I'm a hospital and I rely on electricity well, it's not good enough to say, well, damn the hydro people, they should they should never let the network go down. For other forces, they will go down. So my question to you is, what are you doing from a risk management perspective to, to mitigate that risk? What is your backup plan? Yes, Roger should have a backup plan. And yes, it shouldn't happen. I agree with all of that. But sometimes, you know, a uh, uh, a car goes out of control and hits a certain building and hurts a piece of technology and it goes down, what is your backup? And I think we we saw exposed that there were a lot of people who had just assumed that maybe this network would never go down. And that was a really bad assumption. You mean like breaking up their bundle? Well, or, or having backup suppliers, for instance, again, at a hospital, to take Hamlin Health Sciences or St. Joseph's Hospital, they have emergency generators that kick in. So if a power goes off and is out for more than, I think it's uh, 15 seconds, instantly these emergency generators kick in and they supply power so that if I'm in the middle of an operation, okay, the lights might dim for a moment or two, but we're, we go on. So if I'm a company and, and I have a service that relies on Rogers, uh, maybe I pay some money to have a backup that could kick in instantly if something goes wrong. The Rogers outage affected 25% of uh, customers on the cell phones and on the internet network. If you were on Bell, it didn't necessarily affect you. If you were on uh, Shaw or if you were on Telus, it didn't necessarily affect you. But it did affect you if you had to reach somebody who happened to be on the Rogers network because clearly the other end of the line didn't connect. But, you know, I don't really worry about the individual users. We, we could, you know, it probably doesn't pay for you and I to have a backup. But if I'm a business and I, you know, I'm an e-business of some sort and it's mission critical that I be online 24 hours a day, well, what is your plan? What is your backup plan? And if the answer is, well, we don't have one, you're actually creating some of the problem yourself. Well, if anything, and, and I get what you're saying and I understand your points, but it also has exposed some really major vulnerabilities, things like banking, 911 services that have all depended on this. Why doesn't Rogers have a backup system? It made $1.5 billion last year. They can afford it more than I can. Right. So for you and I, I think that would be the question as average consumers, what's your backup plan, Rogers? And from what I understand, and you'll get more of this in the report come Friday, that they did uh, isolate the, the problematic hardware or software. They then shut down the network and rebooted it, got it going. And, and this is why you had different levels of service throughout the day. In other words, in this province, they were able to get the network back up and running faster than in that province or in this city. And eventually they got the whole thing up. And so they, they had a plan, but it wasn't instantaneous. And I think, again, it's fair for the minister to say that plan, whatever it is, Rogers, wasn't successful. Now, the minister has said, he would like to see the three major companies, this is Bell, Telus, and Rogers, 
uh, sign some agreement of cooperation that again, if the net one network went down for let's say 15 seconds or a minute, that instantly the other networks would come rally behind them and allow the average person to continue on. And that's something for them to work on. But but I'm also saying that, uh, you know, if the power went out, I don't think it would be acceptable to you and I if a hospital said, well, that's just the brakes. You would say, no, no, you've got a plan for that and make some adjustment. Well, I and I agree with that. I, I think uh, banking institutions might be um, yeah. wondering what they can do as well. Well, you mentioned that Rogers made all those billions of dollars. I believe, and I could be wrong here, Shauna, <laughs> but I believe the banks are doing okay too. And and why why did you uh, sort of go out on this limb and and expose yourself to this risk? I realize, and and even now, by the way, I should say Rogers has always built itself as the most reliable network. If you're down one day in the year, you're still 99.7% reliable, and so I think they still have a fairly reliable network. But they can't guarantee you 100%. So what is what is the plan? And I think um, a lot of businesses are now taking a look at their risk management plans and saying, whatever it was, it wasn't uh, effective enough. We need to mitigate those risks. We're speaking with Marvin Ryder, a professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, and we're talking about Rogers. Now, you use the word exposed, and I think that that's really important because not only did we all find out for the second time in 14 months right. um, that there are certain vulnerabilities, those who would do us harm, those with malicious intent, also found that out. Yeah, now again, the good news is uh, that we'll get in this report on Friday. This was not a cyber attack. This was not a hacker of any kind. Uh, But you're right. If I was a hacker and was thinking, well, let's go after Canada, we're probably not the top of the list. But well, let's say we're on the list somewhere. We can see what it is. Shona, if it helps you at all to think of two countries, the United States and Canada, think of the United States as a rectangle, but think of Canada as a straight line. Um, in Can- Canada's case, most of our population, 38 million people, live within 500 miles of the U.S. border. So we're really spread out in a thin straight line. And when we do things like telephone lines or internet lines or telecommunications lines, it's really about east-west traffic. We don't have any redundancy north-south, whereas the United States is more like a rectangle. And because you have a rectangle, you can get in uh, redundancies much more easily. You probably are far too young, Shona, but about 10 years ago, you might remember that there was a fire on Front Street in Toronto which knocked out the internet for Canada. Turned out this was a very important hub in that straight line, and all you had to do was knock out one hub, and the whole network went down. I believe since then there has been some redundancy, so now we have two straight lines that run about 30 miles apart from each other, one a little further south, one a little further north. But even that, it exposes a vulnerability. And I think we must always be asking these companies to review and revise their plans to build in these redundancies because technology, if it is one thing, it proves itself never to be 100% reliable. Now, when uh, industry minister Champagne called for measures like assistance from the other service providers, move the traffic over there, my first reaction was, isn't that just going to now tick off the uh, customers of two companies? Because everything's going to slow down. 
Well, it might. Now, again, remember, we're trying to move to 5G. 5G is supposed to be a much faster technology than 4G was. And in theory, in theory, for ordinary things like placing a phone call, you, you should see no problems at all. Now, if you were downloading movies, uh, downloading movies in a 4G world is a much slower process than the 5G world. And yes, those customers might find their their ability to download movies throttled back. But again, the theory is that these these outages aren't supposed to be permanent. They're supposed to be for maybe 10 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes. And so for that 20, 30 minutes, you might not you might not actually notice it, but could they come up with a plan? And I would even go so far as to say to Minister Champagne, if these three are not up to the task, maybe it's time to open the door uh, to non-Canadian competitors who are prepared to step up to the plate, take a Verizon out of the United States. If, if you've got it, why don't we welcome you in? And, and so this is, again, a concern. We have a, they call it an oligopoly, a small number of players. It's not a monopoly, but an oligopoly. Maybe what we need to do is put a little more competition in there. I would also say to Rogers, this couldn't have happened at a worse time in terms of the approval of its deal to take over Shaw, and that would be eliminating a competitor. This has shown, if anything, that we probably need more competition, not less. Well, I was going to say, uh, this has also shown that the big three service providers, that's too exclusive a club. It can be, uh, and they're showing that they, they were not as responsible as they needed to be. Uh, now, Shona, you probably haven't covered this, but I'm a Kajiko su- uh, subscriber on cable, and my Kajiko service went down on Saturday for about eight hours, just at the time I wanted to watch the British Open golf tournament on TV. I had no TV coverage. So again, I'm not complaining about it, but it's a sign of how these networks, as well-intentioned as they are, will go down from time to time. What is the plan when we when that happens? So do you think that they'd be willing to open the door uh, to a, an American provider, perhaps? Well, the question was, who's the we there? Would Bell <laughs> tell us and Rogers say they need any more competition? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> Give us a chance. Let us try to fix the problem on our own. Don't do that. But I think this is a question for the government to say, look, you know, if our people are not stepping up, if they're not being good stewards of the technology out there, then maybe we need to add some people who are. And uh, that's their sword that they can leverage in this fight to get the kind of response they want from the big guys. Well, I also think that even though there was this great inconvenience, and it absolutely was, I mean, it cost small businesses a lot of money because they couldn't do business. But I don't think we're prepared to say, you know, maybe we should reconsider Huawei. I don't think anybody is going to do that. No. Well, and this was, I don't think you could trace this specifically to a a piece of technology, whether it's Huawei or Cisco or another company out there that had the problem. Um, But but to your point, again, uh, it's reminded us all that we come to rely on this so much now. Uh, I'm one of those people, Sean, again, you're too young, but (laughs) those of us who are old, we never go anywhere without at least 50 bucks cash in our wallet because you just never know. And for me, it wasn't any inconvenience at all that day that Rogers went down. I didn't have a problem. But for 10 million Canadians, it was a huge problem. And if you're under the age of 40, you don't carry cash. You use your phone as a wallet. And suddenly you couldn't pay for things. Well, how am I supposed to get gas? How am I supposed to get groceries? So it probably behooves us all to rethink, I think, a little bit about just how dependent we become on technology. And that we maybe should carry that 50 bucks that you suggest. Well, I, I tell students this all the time, but now I'm, I'm like the grandpa who, who, oh, that was fine in your world, but I live in a different world. 
I like to have these little reminders sometimes that disconnect is good for us all. Absolutely. Uh, Maybe we should catch up with you again next week after this uh, report is submitted to the CRTC and see if there are any workable solutions to some of the things that we've discussed here today. Or if there's a bigger problem that I don't know about, because I'm I'm not privileged to what the contents are, but when we see it, we'll all know what's going on. Absolutely. Marvin, thank you for your time as always. Glad to be with you, Shauna. Marvin Ryder, professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, talking about the report that Rogers is to submit by the end of this week to the Canadian Radio, Television and Telecommunications Commission about that big outage. And boy, boy, was it inconvenient for their customers. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Wanted to do this uh, interview for a while now. There was a recent investigative journalism piece that really, it made my jaw drop, in part because I have a past association with the organization involved, and in part because the fraud in this day and age went undetected for so long. It's detailed in two stories so far called Ghosts in the Villa, and it's about a $1.2 million scheme that involved identity theft and fake employees. On the line with us is the reporter behind the story who can explain this much better than I can, Grant LaFleche of the Hamilton Spectator. Good morning, Grant. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Can you give us the nuts and bolts of this story? It is a bit complicated, and it, it, it also, as I said, it was jaw-dropping. The, the story is a bit, uh, it's a bit of a maze, but I think we can talk about the, the heart of it pretty simply. So for at least seven years, there were three what we're calling ghost employees in the payroll accounts, the employee accounts of the Villa Italia Retirement Home in Hamilton. Um, these were fake employees using the real names, addresses, and social insurance numbers of at least three uh, real women uh, living in different municipalities in Ontario. And for at least a seven-year span, those fake employee accounts were used to funnel uh, a total of at least $1.2 million from the home's account into a secret TD bank account in Hamilton. And that account, as it turns out, was in the name of its former and now late executive director, uh, Pat Mastacci. I, you know, there are so many questions that I have. They're all flooding forward right now. But first off, how did you find out about this? Because I would think, as with a lot of fraud situations, the parties involved, they want to keep it quiet. Well, yeah, I mean, in this case, um, you know, I'm not at liberty to sort of disclose uh, confidential sources, but we did get a tip that something was amiss at, uh, Villa Italia, and so I began to reach out to those uh, who were in a position to to know, and eventually we were able to make enough headway to get an understanding of what this identity theft and embezzlement scheme, like how it operated and who was implicated. And from there, it was a matter of accumulating um, enough of the documentary evidence, uh, which took uh, quite a bit of time, uh, as well as uh, reaching out to uh, you know, the, the the people who are most at center of it, try to get comment from them. And as well, um, you know, I'm relatively new. I was uh, at the uh, St. Catherine Standard and the Toronto Star investigative team before coming to The Spectator. So I had a lot of work to do to understand who Pat Mastacci was publicly and what his public reputation was, which, as it turns out, is much different than what he's uh, been accused of in this particular scheme. And, you know, I mean, you lay it out very well, and you give the reader a lot of help in understanding this. I guess the secret of any really good fraud scheme is in its its complexity, because it makes it tougher for people to find out what's really going on. That's true. And what's specifically being alleged here is that Mr. Mustachi, in his position as executive director of the home, 
which is owned uh, incidentally by uh, the, the sons and daughters of, of Italy, uh, Charitable Housing Corporation. Uh, he had complete control over the payroll. So there are little things to your point about keeping it hidden that came out of our investigation, one of which was he apparently had complete control of the payroll system, so including its paperwork. So when you get paid or I get paid, uh, probably all electronically now, but pay stubs are generated, right, to show how much you were paid, how much tax came off, et cetera, et cetera. Now, when those pay stubs arrived at Villa Italia, which are automatically generated by their payroll system, he got them in a sealed envelope and he took them behind closed doors. He opened them. He sorted them. Then he gave the the opened uh, sorted payroll stubs to a staff member to be distributed amongst the home's staff. What seems to have been happening here is that the offending pay stubs, the pay stubs that were related to the ghost employees, were being removed. And so it was actually the payroll stubs that exposed the whole thing in the end because Mr. Mustachi was fired over unrelated issues. And when his replacement got the pay stubs, they just handed the pay stubs to the receptionist says, give this to staff. And of course, the, the, the pay stubs for the ghosts went unclaimed. Yeah. And so internally at the home, that was the first domino to really fall to, to show what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, just the fact that they were still using paper pay stubs as recently as two years ago. Yeah. I mean, we at, over at Torstar, we've we stopped that, you know, like 10 years ago, I think. I mean, I don't if I have to find one for some reason, I have to go way back to, to get them. But yeah, in this case. They were they were using proper pay stubs. And there are a number of questions, by the way, over the oversight of the payroll. I mean, think about, you know, at your station, how many people are responsible for double checking your paycheck before you get it right. There's your manager. There's going to be somebody probably in HR or in finance. And then there's probably going to be some senior people who are also checking that off. There's multiple layers of control that doesn't seem to have been the case at um, Villa Italia. But Sons of Italy, who are uh, currently engaged in a civil litigation against the Mustachi estate, which we should note, Mr. Mustachi is dead. He died shortly after the scheme was exposed. Um, they're not saying. So we don't actually know what level of control they had then, and we don't know what's changed uh, right now. I have to say this crossed my mind while I was reading your story. This yes. is going to sound more snarky than I intended to be, but are we sure he's dead? I'm pretty sure he's dead. Um, I, you know, I would be shocked if it turned out he was, you know, faked his death and was living in the Caymans. No, we're pretty sure he died. He died on April 2nd. Um, The actual timeline is interesting because the Villa Italia becomes aware of this scheme around January the 7th of this year. Uh, They begin litigation and begin approaching him for information after they have a forensic audit of their payroll system done in March, in early March. They begin to approach him specifically around March 11th. Uh, March 17th is when they get some court orders freezing all of his assets while there's civil litigation going on. And shortly thereafter, he falls very ill and dies on April the 2nd. The cause of his death has not been disclosed. Yeah, um, it's just astounding. I mean, this is uh, all told it's $1.2 million. How mm-hmm. much money is still unaccounted for? All of it, except for maybe a few thousand dollars that were left in the account at the time of his death. Um, we actually got our hands on the the records, some of the records for the TD bank account. And what those records show is that money was going out as fast as it was coming in. But we're not sure where how exactly that money was used. We know that of the $1.2 million over a seven-year span, something like $450,000 was withdrawn either with cash withdrawals at the branch or by ATMs or by e-transfers. He also, uh, well, 
was moving um, money onto eight different credit cards every week, thousands of dollars every week, but we don't know what those credit cards were used for. So it, there is a question, you know, in investigations like this, you want to follow the money, but we've run into a couple of dead ends. We're still working on it. But as of right now, we know that the money went from Villa Italia through those ghost accounts into this TD Bank account. We know that most of that money was moved out in very large sums as quickly as it was coming in. And But we're not sure what that money was used for. And that's sort of one of the enduring mysteries of this story. Okay, another question I have, and this is really yeah. reporter to reporter. <laughs> how, how, did, how did you get the banking records for the Mustachi account from TD? It's a kind of magic um, I can't. I can't disclose, except to say that we got them uh, from a source uh, who was able to provide us with some specific information about the activities in that account. Okay, we're in conversation with Grant Lafleche, uh, investigative reporter with the Hamilton Spectator, about this uh, pretty amazing fraud that went on for a long time uh, at a retirement home in Hamilton. One of the gut wrenching things about this grant that really has stayed with me: the three women whose profiles were used in order to create these ghost profiles of employees. The CRA is coming after them for the taxes on the money that they were never actually paid. Well, we know of the three. So it, it, the profiles of these three women is sort of interesting. There, there are three. The third, who was a, a younger woman uh, in her 30s who was listed as living in Ancaster, we were unable to locate her. But the other two, Ina Sillis is an 84-year-old in Grimsby. Uh, she's a retired nurse. Uh, Brenda Thomas, who lives in Brampton, has never even been in the Hamilton area. She uh, is also a retired nurse. Both Ina Sillis and Brenda Thomas report that they're having issues with CRA who saying that they owe uh, a lot of back taxes on, on money that they don't understand why they would. It's, un, it's actually a little unclear at this point if their troubles with CRA are connected to the Villa Italia fraud or it, it, whether it's something else. But it is interesting, is it not, that the, the identities of these two uh, were stolen, that they were both nurses, which, you know, if you gave a, a quick look at the Villa Italia payroll, and looked into who they were and went to, the say, the College of Nurses, they would appear as, as nurses. So, of course, they would work at a retirement home. And they're now having problems with CRA while their social insurance numbers are being used as part of this identity theft. So there's still more there to report. But I think that what you're pointing out is that the ripple effects um, of this fraud continue well beyond um, just Mr. Mustachi. Yeah, exactly. And it, it, another part of this that is shocking is that um, their profiles were blocked so that there was no reporting of their income to Revenue Canada. And there were audits done. Like, that's not usual. You don't have full-time employees who don't pay income tax. Well, this, this boils down again to who controlled the payroll system and who actually, like, what levels of supervision and control were there. And, and was it really all down to Mr. Mustachi? Because if he has complete control over the payroll, then it's a very simple matter to um, manipulate those accounts, to direct money to bank accounts, to hire and fire fake employees, which we haven't even talked about, which is when he tried to manipulate the payroll system after he was fired over unrelated issues to try to cover his tracks. And that attempt failed, which we can talk about more if you like. But yeah, I mean, one of the ways that this was set up in the system was to block all deductions. So your CPP provincial, federal tax, all that stuff, unemployment that you would usually pay off your paycheck, those were all blocked, which you would only see typically in a, like a contractor. You know, you hire a contractor to work at your, uh, I don't know, fix your lawn or fix your roof or something. 
and then you pay them. It's up to them to pay those deductions to the federal government. But in most in workplaces, that's done automatically. Um, it, it seems that, that was done for two reasons. One, to try to keep CRA at bay as long as possible. But two, it also had the side benefit of having those that their full net pay is the same as their gross pay. And that all that money was being deposited into the secret bank account. And by the way, um, not only was the taxes blocked, but the fake employees were also listed as earning overtime. Um, the Ina Silas ghost earned something like $13,000 in overtime in, in 2015. Um, they were being paid stat pay. They were being paid holiday pay. They were being paid retro pay. I mean, these are people who don't exist, but they were still earning money as if they were a real staff member, all of which meant there was more money going into that account at the end of the day. Well, if you're going to fake three accounts and fake three employees, you're going to do it to the nth degree, aren't you? You would think. I mean, to your point about the audits, I mean, what's interesting is that there's annual audits done on Villa Italia's payroll, but they're, they were very high level. Like they weren't, they weren't drilling deep. So yeah, you'd want maybe to go to nth degree if you were trying to sort of squeeze as much money as you wanted. But you wouldn't want to do things that would necessarily draw attention to it. Um, and I think an aspect of the reason that this scheme was able to go on for as long as it did boils down to pure dumb luck. Because those audits would randomly pull employee accounts. They call them an employee sample. So they would just dig in. They would just grab a random employees, just check it out, make sure everything looked good. It just so happens that they never grabbed the ghosts. They could have and they didn't. And they would look at another random employee. So there was an element of luck there. And, you know, he kept giving the ghosts raises over time. I mean, when they when they first were set up, they were earning still a very good salary for, for a person who's not real, uh, $73,000 a year. By the time we get to 2019, that is now $105,000 a year. Uh, but it's being done on a fairly gradual basis every year as to not raise alarm bells. But if, if at any point in those seven years, that employee sample had included one of those three ghosts, that may well have exposed the entire scheme at that point. It just never happened. Yeah, there are a couple of takeaways. We only have uh, a couple of minutes left, but there are some takeaways for the average person. Chief among them, identity theft and guarding your information. 100%. And and it's unclear to us at this stage um, how, you know, those that employee information got into the hands of, of Villa Italia and, and potentially into Mr. Mustachi's hands. Um, it, it's also telling again that two of the three are registered nurses. That seems to be something that was done specifically. But yeah, you have to protect your information. One of the experts we talked to said you know, every time you're using your cell phone, your smartphone to do something, or you're shopping online, or you're sending e-transfers, you're kind of giving off what they call a digital exhaust. That information is out there to be. Um, snagged by criminals to say nothing of hackers who, you know, hack the Equifax uh, credit bureau or, you know, we've seen other um, businesses that have lots of private information about Canadians get hacked over time. We're all kind of vulnerable to this. So, I mean, think about it in these terms. Your personal information is vulnerable. And look at what happened to the Rogers collapse, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Um, I mean, all of this digital infrastructure around us is actually more vulnerable than we think. So it, it behooves us to take the steps necessary to try to protect our personal information because really nobody else is doing it for us. Well, Grant, it's a a fascinating couple of articles. I'm guessing you're still working the story. Uh, Yes, ma'am. Yeah, (laughs) I can't say when the next one's coming out. Um, There's still a lot of work to do on some of these unanswered questions, but we are chopping away at that tree every day. 
Well, I'll be looking for uh, future articles on this. It is, as I said, astounding that somebody could get away with this for so long and in this day and age. Uh, thanks for joining us, Grant. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. We'll talk again. Grant Mustachi, Grant Mustachi, sorry about that. Grant LaFleche has been writing the story about uh, uh, Pat Mustachi and what happened at uh, Villa Italia. It's called Ghost in the Villa, and uh, it's definitely fascinating reading. Grant LaFleche, our guest from the Hamilton Spectator. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.